want a pickle I just want to ride on my motorcycle All right, and we're rolling Nokomoto episode 27. I wrote it down this time so I know for certain. Nice. Okay, let's talk. Oh, wait, I'm your host, MotoGP, and with me is our other host, Swiggy. Yo. And let's talk bikes now first up i want to do another listener update there were a couple other new cities that have popped up that we neglected to mention of course there's you know pat Ascala, ohio but also cincinnati's been coming up and also fort lauderdale new york city and um what was the town in buckinghamshire aylesbury aylesbury buckinghamshire uh buckinghamshire sorry Blah. jesus christ um is that anywhere near Jordan's, near the uh, the Mayflower? I don't know. Well, fortunately, Google Maps can solve this for us. Anyway, they're in the same they're in the same county. So if anyone from Aylesbury wants to get a picture of you and your bike next to the Mayflower, big points from us. If anyone doesn't know, the Mayflower, as in the Mayflower, is in Buckinghamshire. We've been there. It's awesome. If you're an American, you ever go to England. Go see the fucking Mayflower. It's a long story of why it's there, but totally worth doing. It's owned by a bar or a pub, but whatever. Um, Which is kind of insane. It is insane that just some pub owns the fucking Mayflower, right? And then there's also the grave, the family plot of uh, William Penn, founder of Pennsylvania, like almost in the shadow of the barn. You can throw a tennis ball and hit this tiny little church thing which is about the like i don't know may may see 10 people in it and has the the little family plot in in um oh, what's the word graveyard <laughs> um, <laughs> next to it um yeah so yeah if you're in aylesbury send us a picture i want to see that all right. And then there were some other towns too, just looking through some of these listens, these cities that pop up. Again, there's just like so many now, but like, I just want to recognize you guys. So Niceville, I think we may have talked about before. Um, Toronto has been coming up in a big way. Australia has been showing up big time in listens that you guys were really falling off. And we've also picked up New Zealand, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia. Uh, these are places I never saw listens from before. So welcome, everybody. All right. And then we've got emails to read. Okay. So I got an email from Guy Arnon. Arnon. I can't remember. Oh, it's been months since I listened to the episode of This Motorcycle Life that Guy was featured on. It was a Linguini and Clams episode. He's a chef in New York. He's a moto vlogger. Really cool dude. And um, he responded to us talking about Piaggio part support. <laughs> yes. So reading some things, some emails and some stuff online, this is not a problem unique to us. And Guy confirms it here. What do he say? He's been through like three engines or something like that. Fort Gators, you know, turn signals, new ignition, all kinds of uh, two final drive seals, like all kinds of shit. Well, so. here's the thing with the Norge, nothing just went bad or failed. In fairness, everything that's gone wrong has been like an actual mishap 
or you know a freak accident has occurred. Oh, yeah, I'm not mm-hmm. saying that Motogusis are unreliable bikes because they're not. And he even admits in his email that he's outside of the norm. The problem is, is that when these things do go wrong. It's a nightmare to get it fixed right. and to get the parts in. That's what we're talking about. You know, Hondas are incredible for reliability, but things are still going to go wrong from time to time. But if you've got a Honda, you'll find a dealer, you'll get those parts in no problem. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it's a 30 year old bike, you'll get the parts. Right. So he talks about, you know, going to Italy and going to the Moto Guzzi Museum, which is open for one hour a day or something insane, which is so Italian. I love that. And he says like, yeah, it's a big bitch to get these parts, but you know, hope that you're trying to get them before August when everything shuts down. Now that sounded a little weird to me at first. And then I realized, oh yeah, there's this great way that a lot of factories work in Europe and the UK where if what you're doing is pretty seasonal, so I was in Bishop Stortford working for Hayter Lawnmowers, as you did too for a short time. And so if you're a temp, you just kind of work regular hours throughout the year. But all the guys that are fully hired on, they work 11-hour days in the winter, and in the summer, they go down to like four hours a day, and then for like six or eight weeks just don't show up. They get paid the same way all the way through. So I'm guessing that this is what Moto Guzzi does. There's this time in like August, September where there's just no one there. So God help you if you need to order a rare part during those months because it's just not going to fucking show up until people go back to work. And then it's still got to get mailed and shipped here. But the thing I don't understand is you could set up a warehouse in somewhere in California and somewhere in New York or Virginia or wherever on each coast and have, you know, essentially two or three day shipping to any place in the country with a reasonable stock of parts. Well, right. And they can get one large place in stock parts for Vespa, Aprilia, and Moto Guzzi, you know, it may right. be that they don't have enough demand for each of these brands individually, but since they're all under the same umbrella, why can't they all just, you know, consolidate? I don't get it. I don't know. Maybe at, we'll, we'll reveal in a little moment here why we might get to talk to someone that may have a really convincing answer for us, but we're, I'm not going to rest until I really figure out why this is such a pain in the ass. Because I love all three of those brands. I think they produce amazing bikes, all of them. And I want to be able to look people in the eye and be like, oh, yeah, GTS 300, got to go for it. Or, yeah, a a Tuono, why wouldn't you own one? A Norge, a V7, these are great bikes. But knowing what the part support is right now, mm, it's a little weird. Now, a lot of people have said it gets better the newer your bike is. So my initial guess is, we're somewhat accurate on that, but it's still not what it should be, even for the new bikes. Right. I mean, it's one of those things, though, where, like, you know, after I got the Norge back and got it all back together, realized that the return spring on the rear brake was inaccurate. I have ordered an OEM one, but I have no expectation that it's going to arrive within the next two weeks. So yeah. I went to Ace Hardware and bought a spring of similar size and had to strip it down 
and unwind the threads and and fashion a shorter one to do the job. But, you know, if I wasn't willing to do that and I wasn't going to ride it without the OEM spring, something like a spring failing could mean three or four weeks of not riding, which for a part that costs a dollar fifty right is a little much well and that's what guy is saying here he's got this line you know i love my gootsy but it's been an up and down relationship and it's taught him the value of a good warranty and he's like he's saying like he's he might have to upgrade to the ducati because at least he'll look really cool when he's pushing it down fifth (laughs) (laughs) Ave. i really enjoyed that line guy yeah, this whole this whole email you sent us is wonderful. You know, and he talks all about listening to us on the subway because now he can't ride because he's got all this time off the road. You know, and he talks about how he had two Vespas before, one fifty and a GTS three hundred. So he's been sort of Piaggio faithful to this point. So we're talking about the fact that their part support is starting to turn off long term customers. That's an issue. And I don't know anyone that's really talking about this. And the other thing was How is this brand going to get any bigger? How are these bikes that people so should be riding? I mean, anyone thinking about an 883 Sportster should also be thinking about a V7. Right. Well, it's also like with the the Norwich when when I dropped it at Coda, which still hurts to say. Yeah. uh, Is looking up the paint and like just trying to find touch-up paint for it. And going down to Erico and saying, "Hey, I just need a I need a, a touch up kit for uh, a red 2008 Moto Guzzi Norge." And then you get this like glazed over look in the eyes of the parts like, person. Like, and well, the parts guy was like, uh, "I don't know if Piaggio sells any touch up kits, right?" And then having to dig and find six year old internet forum posts of. Some guy who's got all of the paint codes that he like got some guy working at, at Moto Guzzi to spill the beans on and found out, oh, it's, it's Rosso Corsa. It's OEM Ferrari paint. Yeah. In which case he should have been like, would you like me to put in a parts order for like the Shroud of Turin instead? Right. <laughs> <laughs> But that's kind of like, that's just how it's been. It's just kind of, I, would, I wouldn't I would even care if it was like $50 for an ounce of paint. Yeah. But like that should be available. Or if it's not available, it should refer to the to the Ferrari touch-up paint. Yeah. You know, minor things it, should not turn into. Because right. you could accept that it's Ferrari Rosso Corsa paint. And, the, and it's like, okay, it's expensive, but at least I know I'm that cool that I have Ferrari red on my bike. Like, okay, it's going to be expensive. Can I at least get it? You know? And like, yeah, you can get it from this dude, like <laughs> in Germany, right? Who just happens to have a shit ton of it for reasons we don't know. Why, you know, like, why does he have it and Piaggio doesn't have it? What well, the fuck? So far, of the parts that have been delivered to me for this bike, 100% have been from eBay. Right. And it's just, it's a bike that's just turned 10. Right. Yeah. And, it and I've got so- new old stock for a, for an 83 CP 1000. Now, the issue that Guy's having is that he can get the parts 
it's still just taking forever though. That's his problem. Yeah. For the newer bikes, you can get the parts. It's just taking forever. You know, like I think he said somewhere, I can't remember if it was six weeks or six months or something, but like some absurd amount of time, his bike's been off the road. And this is a bike under warranty. It's not like he doesn't have money to fix it. It's not like he doesn't, you know, there isn't a shop. Like it's in a shop. He's taking it to a shop and they're just waiting on their own damn parts. What is up with that? You know? that's that's turning people off and i love this make of bike so much and i don't know so anyway uh thank you so much for the email guy and if we are in new york we're totally gonna hit you up um and you know thanks for thanks for giving us something to talk about there and then moving on we got another nice email from matthew in virginia uh let's see matthew put bergman in the title we're working on that, Matthew. Stay with us. All right. So he came to us as well after listening to this motorcycle life. He lives in Virginia. He's got a 50-mile commute, and he listens to us in the car because also his bike is off the road right now. There's a theme going on here. Let's see. Talks about the bike he's had. He had a Vulcan 750 in the late 90s, and then he went to Iraq. So thank you for your service, buddy. He got a 2004 Buell Firebolt in black. We're well familiar with those. And he thinks he might buy another one. Can't go wrong there. There's so many used ones. Like, buy two. Get one as a parts bike. You'll ride it forever. I love Buells. He ended up having issues with his knees, so we got rid of it. And then he got an 07 FZ1. Fucking awesome bike. I've, I've spent time thinking about those. And then he spent way too much on mods. And then he traded that in for an FJR 1300, which he's put 4,000 miles on the FZ1 this year. So he just recently got the FJR. And I love the, um, the escalation that's gone on in all of this, right? So we're from 750 to 900, essentially one liter with the Firebolt, though. Well, he doesn't say if it was an XB9 or an XB12. You might have to send us another email. And then, yeah, then the one liter with the FC1 and now the 1300 Hyper Tour. Awesome. He says he's really into these black bikes, being, spends way too much money making his silver parts black and... Doesn't like cleaning it, but he likes working on his bike, and that's when he's listening to us as well. So thank you, Matt. Awesome. Like anyone, just send us an email. Like I guarantee you I'm going to read your email on the show, or I'm going to just write you back a response super quick. And even, you know, whatever you've got, like we want to know who you are, what you ride, why you ride. So send it to us. Okay. Let's see here. Moving on. What else we got an update on here at the top? Hmm. Oh, so I was talking to dad today. And in uh-huh. sometime in September, here he's going out to California and he's coming back. He knows the date. I I don't know the date, but there's it's on the it's on the schedule that he's going out to California and for some undisclosed amount of money that's probably going to be very low. He's coming back with, I can't remember what year. It's like a, it's like, it's somewhere between 58 and 61. The, uh, the Greaves dirt bike with the 250 Villiers in it. Oh. And a, uh, late 50s BSA 
440 Victor, which is in some level of, uh, I don't know what you call it, disassembly. So, but it's supposed to be a complete bike and possibly also an EFI bullet classic or classic bullet, bullet 500, whatever. Oh, the EFI? Yeah. I told them, leave the bullet behind. You have no use for that in your life whatsoever. I mean, maybe he'll get it cheap enough that he can just sell it for a profit or something. I don't know. But I want no part of that motorcycle. So the point is, is that I've had this ongoing odyssey with my shed, which I just found a really great solution for, a really great fast and cheap solution for today, in fact, so I'm thinking that the Ducati Monster is going to cease to be a group project and become our project because there's no way in hell that dad's going to do any work to this Ducati in the next like couple months. He's, there's too much else on this plate. And then once this grieves and this BSA come into his life, there's no way in hell. It's going, it's going to the back of the, the pile. Exactly. So sure. this is going to become our Ducati monster, not even ours and dad. This is going to be, so it's completely up to us. I think pretty soon what we're going to do to this thing. So I'm doubling down on my tweed seat idea. <laughs> I, I was thinking of going the complete opposite direction. What's that? I was thinking like this needs to this needs to become like the most ridiculous flamboyant bike ever with like a rainbow striped tank and you know, this needs to be a bike so ridiculous and flamboyant that it needs to make it into the pride parade. Okay. Well, yeah, we're okay. Mm, I I don't know. Should we, should we do something in, uh, in spirit with, uh, those, uh, those, um, peak hipster videos from Marlin on YouTube? Should we do like every fashion mistake possible with this monster? With the Ducati? Yeah. I mean, it's already got a lot of those in it, right? So, I mean, you know, it's got the, the option chrome tank. It's got the super tiny mirrors on it. It's got the budget aftermarket fake carbon fiber exhaust. It's already going in that direction. Should we just keep pushing it in that direction? Uh, That's an option. We would have to get rid of the rear turn signals and put in a single unit brake light and turn signal. We would have to, oh, we'd have to convert it to GP shift. <laughs> we'd have to do that. I don't think we'd have to. I think it, it's a purely cosmetic endeavor. That's a, that's a fact that would be revealed to maybe a handful of people in person. <laughs> I know, but it would give you so much credibility with someone that realized when you went there into that detail. Just went, yeah, with this bike, we really went for every mistake possible. No, I think they would just shift it. They would look, they would shift it. They would look at you and just say, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, there's that. Um, oh, here's some other exciting news I've got on my list. All right. It, it, I, it, we received yesterday morning, right? Yes. Yesterday morning or afternoon, something confirmation that we have now received media credentials or approval for media credentials for the AIM Expo in October. Someone's going to get fired over this. 
like through black magic or an extreme lack of judgment from the powers that be, we have been granted. So we're going to be there for the Thursday and Friday media day. There's going to be the test rides. We're going to get hold of all the copy for all the new products and everything. We're going to get free food, all the, all the super important, you know, all the things the super important press people get. So we'll be reporting from you there. And I think there's another group. There's a whole group of podcasters going down. So I don't know, maybe a show with everyone we can get a hold of. We're definitely talking with Bruce from this motorcycle life. He's going down there. We're going to meet up. So. I don't know. I'm super excited for that. We, I've never been to AIM and I've never even been to Vegas. In fact, like the first time I'm going to Vegas, I'm going to a convention with like media pass. Like this is, this is kind of weird. Like I need to learn how to play blackjack. Basically. You don't know how to play blackjack. Well, I know how to play blackjack. I'm just, I don't know. Like, you know, I don't know how to play blackjack, you know, get the actual like 49 to 51 odds. You know what I'm saying? Well, you can't normally. It's always against you. Right. So you have the 49%. They, the house is 51. You're right. Right. I don't know how to maximize my odds. I don't really know how to play blackjack. I can fake it for a couple hands. and then I could like, teach you in like 15 minutes. That's what I've heard. We need to do that. But also – my fate, like, I don't have a thing for gambling, right? So many people in my life are really about gambling and it holds no magic for me. I enjoy sitting around a table and having drinks while everyone shit talks while they're gambling. I'm really into that. But as far as the actual gambling, that really doesn't hold any magic for me. But if we're in Vegas, like we got to play a couple rounds of blackjack, but the only other time I've ever really actually enjoyed gambling, I was in Deadwood. So after Sturgis, me and a buddy rode up to Sturgis, and then we thought, well, there's nothing going on here. So we went over to Deadwood, right? And we go in like the hotel casino and everything. And we realized something you can do in casinos that sort of breaks the rules and you might get in trouble for doing this. And we sort of gotten a little bit of trouble for doing this, but if there's no one else at the roulette table, or even if there are, if you're not interested in winning, you can sit down and each of you does the minimum bet one on black, one on red. And you just decide that you're going to share your tokens, right? Oh, and just get free drinks. Exactly. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> every time one of you is going to win, one of you is going to lose, right? And then just every like ten rounds or something, you throw a tip to the uh, to the girl running the table, and you're all good. And you can just sit there forever drinking I, booze. I don't know how I haven't heard of this or thought of this yet. I we didn't never heard of it. We were just sitting there walking around the casino and it was a very, very drunk and alcohol mode. You know that scene in The Hangover where he goes up to the roulette table and there's like all those numbers going in front of his face and everything and behind his head? I've actually and never seen the hangover. 
Oh, well, there's this famous scene where this, uh, this idiot, the idiot of the group uh-huh. is like, you know, pretends that he's like Rain Man or whatever. And he goes to make this bet and it just all falls through, right? That's the joke. But, you know, all these numbers are flying through the air. You know, you're seeing into his head. It was like that, except it was just different ways I could scam this casino out of alcohol. And I saw <laughs> the roulette table and I was like, aha, I know what we're going to do. <laughs> And, you know, after they were catching on to what we were doing, uh, the woman was like, you know, like, and we, we throw some tips and stuff. But I was like, how many people like catch on to this? And she was like, well, you're like the third people this week. And it was like Saturday. <laughs> so it, people do figure this out. But anyway, we're definitely going to have to do that till we get in trouble at, at, uh, at Mandalay Bay for sure. There's no way we can't do it. All right. <laughs> so let's see. We're at, um, oh, we're at like 25 minutes. You want to do best worst bike in the world? Let's take a break. I grab some more beers. All right. We're going to be right back with best worst bike. <laughs> Okay, and we are back with everyone's favorite segment, Best Worst Bike in the World this week. Our usual disclaimer, don't get your feelings hurt if your bike is the worst bike in the world this week. There'll be a new one next week, and, you know, it's all in good fun. Just a fun way to look at a couple different bikes. So, this week... Uh, well, I should say every week, again, we choose bikes that we do not know what each other has chosen... And this week, you've got the best bike in the world this week. Yep. All right. You ready to reveal it? Let's go. And the best bike in the world this week is? The Kawasaki W650. Ooh. Okay. So we are well familiar (laughs) with this motorcycle. Yes, we are. So let's just look up the number so I don't get anything wrong here about it. So this is... It's kind of the deal of the century right now because everyone's expecting to be able to pick up a Bonneville really, really cheap. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that you still can't get a good Bonneville for like five grand, which is everyone ever keeps thinking. Like I personally know three different people right now trying to get a cheap Bonneville. They're just like, holy crap. I would totally go for a Bonneville if there was a used one that was a good buy right now. And there's just not. They're holding on to their value like Harleys hold on to their value. Well, yeah, there are 15-year-old Bonnevilles that are going for like seven grand. Right. And they were what, nine, ten, ten and a half when they were new, mm-hmm. right? It's absolutely insane. So, Which is also ridiculous because when you think about it, all of these bikes that are holding onto their value ridiculously well, five, ten years from now, they're all just going to get lost in the mix. And there's no shortage of them either. Yeah, there, there's a hard crash coming. There is a Beanie Babies fidget spinner <laughs> type bubble in Triumph Bonnevilles right now, right? <laughs> and it's that it's going to crash at some point, but it still hasn't crashed. So if you want that standard bike... If you want that classic look, you know, these things aren't super rare, but they're rare enough 
that they, they st- are rare in America. That they still cost a little bit, but you can get a good one for much cheaper than you'll get the Bonneville for. For everyone's going to think you're just as cool, if not cooler, because this thing looks more like a Bonneville than a Bonneville. Right. So if I, I'm just going to go through the history a little bit. So the cow, the W650 came out in '99. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first year wasn't sold in America, but they sold between the two years about 2,500 between 2000 and 2001 in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that was all that they sold. It was a total flop over here. America didn't really get it at the time. Yeah, if they had started selling this bike in like 2009, holy crap, it, we wouldn't even care about the new Triumph Bonnevilles. Right. Now, the interesting thing about the W650 is that it is not a knockoff of the Triumph Bonneville as you would expect. Yeah. It is actually, it's a throwback to the old W2, which was also a Kawasaki, which was an improvement on the W1, which was a licensed copy of the BSA A7. Right. Well, okay, and that's a very, that's a similar-ish bike to the Bonneville. And you have to admit, though, like, by the time they got to the W650, they were pulling a lot from the Bonneville as well. Because at this same time, Kawasaki was doing, like, the Vulcan Drifter and all that other stuff, which were essentially copies of Indians, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And they did like an 800 drifter and they did a 1500 or 1400 drifter or whatever. And those are very much like sort of Indian chiefs. That's so, so Kawasaki was way ahead of the game on this whole classic bike retro thing. And they just, they were just way too early. No one had caught on to it yet. And these bikes are super cool and they fetch good money because they're these rare weird oddities and the people that know about them like really treasure them so they do have a little bit of an inflated price but the thing is is because they're so unique and there was nothing else available like this and you can get that classic style and it's actually all that classic engineering just with modern machining standards so if you want basically a 1950s indian chief but you want one that operates the way that it should you get a vulcan drifter and only motorcycle people know it's not an indian right and then if someone realizes it's not an indian well then you get to have this conversation about how it's actually this really weird rare kawasaki bike thing and the same thing applies to this bike well here's the thing I have owned the W650 for two and a half years yep. now. And of probably 40 or 50 people who have come up to admire the bike, 30 of them have no idea what it is and just say nice bike or don't go any further than that. Mm-hmm. And then 90% of the rest of them say nice Bonneville. You know what? You know what this bike is? This is the perfect gas station conversation bike because if you do have an old bonneville or like an old um cb750 or an old whatever iconic bike right well then people will never stop fucking talking to you about your bike and at some point you're going to be annoyed at how much you have to talk to people about this bike right but 
you know, if you want people to like constantly, like, you know, compliment you on your bike just enough, this is the bike, right? Cause enough people are going to be like, Oh, cool old classic bike or whatever. And you just be like, yeah, you know, whatever. It's not that deep of a conversation, right? If you actually have an old sixties triumph, then at gas stations, you're just never going to stop talking to old guys and they're going to want to ask you the whole history. How long have you had it? Have you done any work to it? Blah, 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 blah. And that's a great conversation to have up to a point, right? I mean, just think about when we had the CB750 down at Coda, right? And now, of course, we were parked like right by the entrance to the track and like literally everyone from the campground had to like walk through our campsite. So it was just this never ending, you know, conversation. In fact, we were like taking it in shifts who would tell people the history of this <laughs> yeah. motorcycle as they were walking by. Right. The W650 is this perfect thing where enough people think, oh, really cool. Then they see the Kawasaki badge and then, okay, we're limited to like a one minute conversation now. Well, here's the thing. When people come up and ask you about this bike, a lot of people just say, nice bike. Okay. Thanks. On your way. Mm -hmm. We're good. And then out of, you know, the 50 odd people who have come up and said something about the bike, only two people so far knew from more than 20 feet away that it was a w650 and those people was just like you know it's up right awesome thank you good to go now with the other people who think it's a bonneville you've now got a decision point here where if you don't want to have the conversation you can just say thanks and ride off yeah but if you're in that mood where you really do want to talk about your bike, you can say, it's not a triumph. Yeah. And then they do the double take and then they see that they see the Kawas they see the badge that it's in the triumph outline, but it says Kawasaki and they're like, wait, what is this? And if you really want to get enthusiastic about it, you can say, well, it's a 2000. But, you know, it's based off of the old W2, which is also a 60s Kawasaki, which is based off of, you know, a BSA. And then you can talk about the bevel drive and all the weird history of it and how it came out in 2000 and it's a re, it's a retro bike, but the American market didn't really get it. But, you know, all the people that bought it were really into it. So they're all pristine and in good condition. And you can just, you can talk for an hour about this bike. If you want to. If you want to. Yeah. You know, it's, it's great too, because this is a way to, you can, um, you can have your cake and eat it too, because you can get without being a hipster, you can ride this bike around like you're riding a classic bike, but you're not on a classic bike. But you're also not on a new Bonneville where, you know, you're doing this hipster posturing thing, which not all people on new Bonnevilles are doing. Like the new Bonneville is a great bike. Everyone admits it just it does what it's supposed to do. Right. And it does it very well. And it does it fairly reliably, too. You know, there's issues with how much they're holding on to their value. But if you're buying a brand new one and that's that cost isn't a problem for you, I can't tell anyone that it's a bad buy. There are some things about it, like I'm, I, 
I wish it had a mono shock and some other things. And I think there's a way they could have incorporated that into the, de- the design and made it look really natural still, but whatever. This bike lets you have that classic coolness without being uppity about it, you know, and it's a great city bike. It's a great commuter, but you know what? Like we've done what two or three iron butts with one of these. We've done, we had two iron butt attempts attempts that fell just a little short. And then we had one legit. Well, there was another one that we could have pressed on and actually completed the iron butt, but we opted not to. We were just like, you know what? We have nothing to prove that day, but we were on track at like, on like 880 miles with like six hours to go to complete the rest of it or something. And there was just no reason. We were already at home and we were like, you know what? We don't really need to go to like Estes Park and back to like, you know, finish right. this. Um, yeah. And the original course we set that day wasn't for a full thousand miles. We just realized we were on track to do it. So yeah, yeah we've it's not, it's not an easy iron butt. It's yeah. The, the seat can get at you a little bit. The, the stock seats, not the greatest for long trips, but you know what? We still got it done, right. you know? So, so just looking at the specs here, I mean, it really is pretty good considering that it's totally rock solid. Yeah. It is. So it's a little bit, it's a slightly longer, long stroke parallel twin. It's 50 horsepower and it's 41 foot pounds of torque. And it does this at 5,000 RPM. Yeah. And the red line's around 8,000 RPM. So in fifth gear, this bike will do 75 miles an hour at 5,000 RPM. And we have demonstrated many times it will do it for hundreds, if not thousands of miles with no issues whatsoever. It's insanely reliable. It is built very, the build quality is fantastic. And, you know, it just nails the look so hard. And when you have something that comes together that does the performance, that it's supposed to do. I mean, there's no lying in the numbers, right? They say 50 horsepower and I've rung this thing out all the way and it's a legit 50 horsepower. And you know what? It's enough, you know, because when you get on this kind of bike, you don't really need, you wouldn't actually want it to have any more because the way it is, once you get over about 85, the front end gets a little dancey on you and everything. And, but, you know, up to 75, it's still stable and solid and it's fine on the highway. And there's no reason you can't go coast to coast on it. It's got, um, like I said, the seat leaves a little bit to be desired in comfort, but there are aftermarket seats you can get. But, you know, what it is, is it is what an old Bonneville or an old BSA should or would or could have been. When you look at an old classic British bike in a museum and you think about how awesome it would be to ride that bike, in reality, that's a terrible motorcycle to ride. The experience, if you've ridden anything remotely modern, that old classic bike will disappoint the shit out of you. But if you get on a W650, you are having an experience that is like as if someone rolled out of a dealership on a Bonneville in 1960 something 
and the bike was better than it possibly could have been on that day. You know, it is perfect. You you can pick up one of these with 30, 40,000 miles on it. And it's basically just still going to be a just 10 times better experience than the best sorted old British bike you've ever been on. Now, there are some downsides to this bike, and it has a lot of features that we brought up in our uh, motorcycle technologies that need to die. This is true. But this bike's 20 years old, almost. So It is 18 years old now. It gets gets a little past there, and it has been out of production since 2007. If it were in Buckinghamshire, it could have a beer right now. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... It is carbureted. It does have a single front disc. And it does have a rear drum. Now, in fairness, that is enough to stop this bike. It's true. Now, you may have some trouble. If you took it to the track, you're going to have a bad day. Yeah, this is not a track bike. Repeat, this is not a track bike. And... There was was a, a couple times I was bringing it down out of the mountains. And... I did have to be very conscious of the engine braking to yeah, not versus front wheel, yeah, yeah, yeah. to not wear overheat or, to not yeah. overheat the brakes. But you know, in reality, everyone talks about having like really good brakes, but I've never been on a bike, whether single piston, you know, double piston, twin disc. Anything like that, where I have not been able to lock up the front wheel, I don't think it's as big a deal. You know, people talk about the quality of brakes. I don't know. I take exception there. I just redid the entire brake system on the Superhawk, and I've got eight pistons total up front, right? And I've got um, two pistons in the back, and... Just having the whole system perfectly sorted now, just I, I can still probably do a little bit more bleeding in the back, but oh, it's so nice to have just totally modern up to you know, track spec. Basically, right. the only part of my brakes that are not track spec as they would be on like the Fireblade or the CBR 600 RR well, no, but the is points, how quickly you can replace the rear brake pads. They don't but, just slide in, slide out as quickly, but the fronts do. Right. But the point I'm making is that are you actually getting better brakes if now, if you have a if you have a, a double piston single front disc, and you can squeeze that brake enough to lock up the front under load, you know, with the forks compressed. Yes, you're squeezing a lot harder, and you've got to really dial in. But are you actually getting more braking power? I, I think there is an argument to be made, you know, especially you know, when you, you are. Here's the thing. If you on most situations, on most bikes, if you need to use your brakes to that ability, you're either on a track or you're riding like an asshole. Right. And even if you don't have brakes that good, yes, there's a certain skill you can get as a rider to just be able to have quicker reaction time, squeeze harder you know, trail break in the right way or whatever it is, leave more stopping distance, right? There's all sorts of things. You don't like, I actually need. I understand that Rossi needs to be able to bring his bike to 
he needs to you know lower his speed by 120 miles an hour with one finger right but if i have enough with four fingers to lock up the front wheel with the forks compressed with one disc i well, think right. that's okay but yeah and well, the brakes are adequate on this and i have no complaints i never had like an asshole pucker moment on the thousands of miles i put on it ever because it's just not that kind of bike it doesn't tempt you to push the limits because it's just a really enjoyable scoot you know it's the best like it's the it's one of the best bikes ever for just a sunday afternoon ride by yourself just really casually it's the best casual ride bike ever is it a screamer no it's not supposed to be so also for my own edification i have been looking at what prices are going for these what these are going for on craigslist and cycle trader right so i got mine for forty six hundred dollars and well, the only reason I didn't pay a full $5,000 for it was because the guy who sold it to me still had the original tires on it. Yeah. Which is questionable. So we took that price off. And then in reality, well, I'll have to make a confession. Even though I am nominating this the best bike in the world yeah. and I own this bike... I am about to sell this bike. Yes. But. Which we've already discussed on the show. But it also brings up an important point, which is I am probably going to get the same money, if not more, than I paid for it. Yes. This is a great investment bike right now. Not by huge amounts, but very slowly. It's increasing in value. This was something I was going to get to when I was talking about the price of these versus buying a new Bonneville, right? New Bonnevilles, like I said, at some point in the next five, seven years are going to crash like fidget spinners and beady babies, right? But this, you can spend anywhere between four and five thousand dollars, but that amount of money is only going to keep going up very slowly. So if you, you can still get it for a little bit cheaper than you would get a Bonneville. And when you come to sell the thing, you might break even or profit, which makes it a much better buy. Right. You know, I think I've made my point. I think, uh, yeah, it's a great value. It performs exactly as it should. It's, it's, the one other thing I it's will a point quiet, out. It's a very quiet styling icon. It's also a very quiet bike with the uh with the double with the dual silencers. Yeah. It's a very quiet bike, but you kinda want it to be quiet. It's a gentleman's bike. It's a gentleman's ride. I have heard that multiple times. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 sophisticated whilst being simple. It you get to have your cake and eat it too. Also, when you're pulling up on, when you're pulling onto the highway, you know, it's a lot of fun, you know, ripping on, on the throttle and getting up to speed on, on a ZX6R or, or, uh, you know, a a CBR on a Fireblade or whatever. But there's a special magic when you're ripping on the throttle to get up to speed 
and you've got to bring it right up to 8,000 RPM and shift yeah, through is. five gears. Yeah, more fun to ride a slow bike fast than a fast bike slow. And it's at the perfect point. And it really is right at the perfect point where... Yeah, you don't have to ring it out in town, but you get to ring it on the highway. And you get to get, you get to go right almost to the red line in fourth gear and then drop it down to do 80, 85 on the highway. You get to, you know, you get to go all, go all the way through the gears. But if you just sit at the speed limit at 75 on the interstate, it's just sitting at that cool 5,000 RPM. Yeah. It's wonderful. I, I've enjoyed every mile I've put on it, even when it was like 40 degrees in Iowa and we didn't have the right, the right gear. For the <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> I, I've enjoyed every mile on it. All right, cool. Okay, so let's move on to worst bike in the world this week. All right, this is, this is going to be a good one. So the worst bike in the world this week is the 1971 to 1974 Suzuki TM400 Cyclone. This is a much storied motorcycle. This is sort of, uh, it's like the Kawasaki H2 of dirt bikes. So this is a single cylinder, uh, 396cc, two stroke. All right. It, Wait, sorry, say that again. This is a 396cc. Okay. Two stroke, single cylinder. So, uh, Suzuki started making works per, uh, prototype race bikes for motocross in 1965. And by like 1967, something like that, they were starting to get respectable. And then in 1971, they won, or maybe it was 1970, but by, by the turn of the decade, they were just the shit in dirt bikes. They won the 250 and 500, um, championships. And then they released this and it cost $999. And I think the 300 or the 250 was like $899. And their whole thing was like, here you go. We're selling you the works race bike for this price. And everyone lost their minds. They're like, are you fucking kidding me? Because everyone knew that Suzuki had these crazy hot dirt bikes that were just kicking the shit out of everyone. Right. So they release the TM 400, which was basically like, you know, the RC, you know, 213 V of dirt bikes at the right. time, right? It was, it was the R1M of the time in dirt bikes, right? They had William Shatner unveil this thing, right? It was a big to do, right? And William Shatner gets up there. Um, he wasn't dressed like Captain Kirk, but he's wearing a suit and he's given all this spiel, right? And he's like, it has all this race technology in it and it's the, it's the thing, right? right. And it's technologically advanced and it's whatever. And the thing looked the business. This is a gorgeous bike. There is no way around it. And everyone was like, are you kidding me? Oh my gosh, it looks so good. And it made 40 horsepower. 
and it made a respectable 29 and a half foot pounds of torque. And I mean, all the numbers were right. Everything was there. No one could wait to ride it. So then Suzuki parades it around all the friendly motorcycle magazines and they say good things about it. And then it just starts selling like hotcakes. And then some other people get their hands on it. Right. And so it turns out that the thing weighed, uh, let's see, was it about 230 pounds dry and 247 pounds wet, which sounds pretty light, but that is heavy for a dirt bike at this time, right? This is a 400 two stroke weighing almost 250 pounds. That's pretty heavy. Now on top of that, Suzuki made it out of a lower grade steel than they were making their works bikes out of to save on costs because it was built to a price point, right? Mm-hmm. And rather than use the works suspension, they just put on standard forks from the time, which were universally garbage. I think one motorcycle magazine did a test and found out that the compression damping curve was 50 50, which is horrible. So it was oversprung and underdamped. So basically the performance of the shocks was comparable to a family sedan car of the time. So this was like riding a boat. It was just up and down. If you hit something, you were going to compress the forks because there was no damping. And then they were going to spring back on you just as violently. And Ooh. yeah, it was terrible. Now it made 40 horsepower, which was great, right? No one disagreed that this wasn't a badass motorcycle. In well, that's terms about of what a modern 400cc four stroke would do, which for the time, is pretty good. Now, the problem is that this 40 horsepower came on all at once. And the reason for that is that it had, and I'm not making this up, PEI, pointless electronic ignition. <laughs> and oh it was so the problem was is that somewhere around suzuki claimed uh so the red line was like 68 75 rpm right now somewhere around 5000 6875 rpm was, was like the red line or whatever okay so suzuki claimed that peak horsepower would happen at around five grand but this pointless system rather would um so that when you kick the okay let's back up when you kick the bike over the timing was retarded all the way to make it easy to start and Mm -hmm. brand new this thing took shit loads of kicks to start there was no read system going in and there was no like variable port on the on the exhaust this was just as basic as it gets just two stroke air in air out nothing restricting or opening or anything right so the only real technology in it that wasn't dinosaur was this electronic system this electronic ignition system which would retard an advanced timing 
Now, the problem comes in is that rather than the timing retarding and adjusting based off of RPM of the engine, which would, you know, advance and retard timing and create a predictable power band, it was run off of the voltage coming off the stator. Wow. So hang on. When you cracked the throttle, it and here's the other thing. When it retarded the timing, it did not do it gradually. It just went from retarded timing, you get up to like 2,000 RPM or something, it's normal. And then at some point between four and 5,000 RPM, when it happened, big debate, big mystery, it would just go full advance, all the power, all at once. This- Is there actually a linear relationship between voltage coming off the stat or amps coming off the stator and um and and rpm and no the, the timing curve or the rpm are there any of these no, because it depends what like what the gearing is it depends on uh, apparently the temperature oh, would yeah, affect the, that uh, the yeah. gearing yeah that <laughs> that would totally throw it off yeah the gearing but apparently the temperature the ambient temperature would change when this would flick over so you had no idea when the power was going to kick in and it would just throw people off like crazy now combine that with the fact that the frame had really shit geometry and it was prone to flex and we've already talked about the shit suspension is this so, a single cradle uh, yes. So you'd be going through the turn, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got your forks compressed. And then all of a sudden, the, you, you're, you'd crack the throttle. The power would kick in unpredictably. You've already got your forks under compression. All of a sudden, then the frame would take the extra load and bend, creating more potential energy. And then you'd come through the, 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 the end of the turn and then the forks, the frame and the engine would all kick off a force at once and just throw riders off like nobody's business. Like no one could tame the beast. And this isn't like a, Oh, it would do this more than other bikes. Cause a lot of bikes were shit at the time kind of thing. No, a whole cottage industry came up around this bike because so many people bought them and they were trying to figure out fixes for it. So you could buy frame kits of various levels, which required different amounts of cutting and welding to try to fix the geometry problems. And at one point, someone even started selling an entire aftermarket frame for this motorcycle well, because the frame flex was so bad. Well, just looking at the bu- a picture of this bike, you've got the cradle at the front right. going up at a shallow forward angle. Mm-hmm. You've got the join on the, uh, on the subframe around the airbox is going up at a forward angle and you've got the rear shocks coming up at a very shallow forward angle. It's all in the same direction. So it's got this trapezoidal shape to it. Mm-hmm. And it's just designed a to single compress. spine yeah. and a single it. The frame is basically a, a giant spring. Exa- and that's exactly what happened. So again, like, and then, so Suzuki tried to, um, 
come in and re- and fix this. So they kept putting on heavier and heavier flywheels to try to counteract this big kick in power that would come on, right? And just like 71, 72, 73, 74, heavier flywheels every year. <laughs> you know, and you know this this sounds a little trivial because in the end in 1975 they did fix all the problems with this bike, but here's the thing. This is the early 70s, right? There's no internet, right? If this bike was put out today, well, first of all, no one would buy it. But let's say everyone had bought it and then the internet just hit, right? Well, then people would be able to communicate what the fixes were for these bikes. But this is 1970-something. So people have bought this motorcycle. They've already bought it, right? So then they're stuck with, like, this bike. Well, what am I going to do to fix it? So all across the country, there's a million dudes trying to do back alley fixes to try to get their bike to behave correctly. And everyone's doing something different. And everyone has to run into someone else at the track or whatever and be like, well, what did you do to yours? What would you do to yours? Right. But uh, no one really has the answer. Right. There's no point where someone just puts up a post and goes, got it, guys. Right. It took until 1974 for people to figure out that you could just swap the pointless electronic ignition system with an old point system from a previously existing Suzuki, and that solved the power band problem. It took Suzuki until 1975 to get enough customer feedback to figure out they needed a better frame with different metallurgy and the whole flywheel thing and everything. It took that long for everyone just to actually communicate word around that this bike was just breaking collarbones at an alarming rate, right? So it's the worst bike in the world because it was poorly engineered, but also it's legendary in being poorly engineered that it took the entire community of dirt bike racers in the country five years just to like get everything together to get Suzuki to get a fix. Like this was a major pain in the ass for everybody. Cause this was the hot ticket bike when it came out, everyone was promised one thing and got a totally different one. I guess and, the other thing is this is right at the peak of, you know, of the motorcycle industry revolving around England. And in the 60s, you've got four channels. You know, where are you going to fit motorcycles into that? There really wasn't, now that I think about it, or even in terms of public radio, there really was, there, you know... Everyone thinks that, you know, oh, well, they still had radio, so there must have been somebody who could do something. But, you know, you got to realize that back at that time, you had four channels on TV, and yeah. you had, what, maybe six radio stations, mm-hmm. AM only, if you were lucky. There were less BBC stations than there are in the Austin Powers BBC song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess really, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about like how information travels, it really at that time, this is very, very, very much pre-information age. And it is just a guy talked to a guy who knew a guy and he was at the track down and wherever. And he came up here this week and he told me, so I'm telling all you guys and 
Well, yeah, Paul McCartney tells this great story about when um, he was learning to play guitar, they'd heard about this chord, B7, right? <laughs> but no one had a chord book, right? So Paul McCartney and George Harrison got up one morning at like seven or something, and they caught a series of buses across town, went to someone's house for to try to find this guy that knew the chord B7. He wasn't home, tracked him down somewhere else, found the guy, found a guitar, got the chord. They all like strummed it a million times, fingered it a million times to memorize it took all the buses all the way back home. They, they arrive at John Lennon's house and he's like, well, what happened? And he fingers the cord and he goes, B seven got it. Right. (laughs) That was how people were finding fixes for this bike. They'd be like, well, I heard this guy that said, if you chop off this part of this frame and re-weld it at this angle and da, 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 da. No, I think he's going to be at this race this weekend. Let's go check out his bike. And they're probably taking protractors out and being like, okay, what kind of steel did you use and whatever? And then they've got it. And then they don't really know how well it's going to work. And then they're going back home and chopping up their own bikes, just trying to find a way to tame the fucking cyclone, which by the way, badass name, part of the reason it sold so well. I mean, but, you know, you'll notice now that all of Suzuki's bikes in this line are called RM. There hasn't been a TM. This TM was supposed to be Suzuki's line of hot, track-ready dirt bikes. And this bike was so bad, it tarnished the entire line with its name. And Suzuki had to scrap the whole thing and then go to the RM bikes that we know today. It left that bad of a taste in everyone's mouth. This was a shit bike. Now, it was a badass like the Z1R TC. Like, no one ever doubted that it didn't have badass power. But there were problems in the way that power <laughs> was delivered. <laughs> so there we go. 1971 to 1974 Suzuki TM 400 Cyclone. What a piece of crap. <laughs> All right. Let's take nice. a break. <laughs> All right, and we're back. So, um, we will probably get some more solid data on this after we go to aim. But for right now, I've just noticed a lot of people talking about the next generation of Bluetooth devices, right? Now, we're still rolling with the Cena 10Cs. Not the C, just the, uh, I can't remember. They, they come up with so many different models. It's the SMH 10. It's the SMH10. I believe it's the SMH10C is what we've got. It's the classic Cena that like everybody bought, right? Right. Which it's weird because I think it's still perfectly viable technology. Like, and maybe it's because I'm a little bit older or something, but it does everything I want it to do, and I have no complaints with it whatsoever. I know some people think the speakers really suck or something, but they are pretty tinny. They are, but my way around that is um, I wear a buff underneath, you know, I wear a buff underneath my helmet, right? Um, which, by the way, just really quickly, how did it take humanity so long to improve on the bandana? 
like really come on like i if if you are, are buying a bandana right now you're an idiot buy a buff it's so much better anyway so I wear this buff and it does a lot of things. It stops a little bit extra wind coming in under my helmet, but also it does this thing. So I've got this barrier between my ears and the speakers, right? And it cuts out the tinniness. So I can kind of like up the volume a little bit, get a little bit more of the bass, but I don't have just like screaming volume tinniness in my ears, right? Maybe so it's it- a combination of the Cena speakers and the phone I use, but... I have to max out the volume on on my uh, on my phone and the Cena, and it doesn't really overpower the wind. See, I don't have that problem, but the only difference between our setups, I think, is, well, one, your helmet has the cutouts for the speakers in it, which mine doesn't, which is what one of the big reasons I started wearing the buff because then my ears just glide into it and like my ears don't knock them out of place with the Velcro inside the helmet or anything. But when I'm wearing the buff, it compresses my ears a little bit. It makes them slide right by the speakers. And I just kind of forget the speakers are there. I just magically have noise. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's not a big problem for me because motorcycling for me has always been, Oh, I get this thrill of riding but I don't have the convenience of being in a car. Like I will deal with these other things, these other thing, you know, because that's, you know, motorcycling is sort of in- injecting a little bit of hardship for an overall better experience. So I've noticed a lot of people complaining about their Bluetooth systems because they're not perfect. And, you know, in the environment of just wearing a helmet that's not completely airtight or watertight and then trying to inject this awesome sound experience into it, like it's never going to work out perfectly. So I've just always accepted the limitations of not the technology, the situation. I guess that is an interesting point, especially if you have if you've grown up in an era where you had to go cross country and find some place with a paper map. Right. And your only other option was to pull up at a gas station and ask somebody where this particular hotel or this particular resort or this particular beach was. Yeah. I mean, I rode for 12 years before I had a Cena and, and had no problem with that. Just me and my helmet, silence and wind, or no helmet and wind or whatever. It was never a problem for me, right? But then the Cena comes along and, you know, you bought that two pack and whatever. And then I went in and got the other one from you and, and all that stuff. And it was like, oh, this is magic. This is just absolute magic. It changed the way I ride. It really did. And, you know, being able to have those turn by turn directions and it was like, and I already had like, you know, the, the iPhone that I have now and it was, oh, I can use Siri and all this other crazy stuff. Like this is perfect. You know, like it was like when I got my first you know, portable Bluetooth speaker around the same time, actually, I was just like, oh my gosh, Pandora and this Bluetooth speaker. This is what I've been waiting for my whole life. And I didn't even know it. Right. Right. And that just extend. Oh, this is like a Bluetooth speaker for my thing. It does everything I want it to do. No problems. Right. And, you know, people complain about the range and there are times where we have ridden and actually been out of view of each other. And the scenes are still working together. 
yeah, some static starts creeping in and everything, but there have been moments where we have been out of view of each other and them still working, right? Right. They talk about how Cena and other companies overclaim on the distance that they work or whatever, but like, yeah, once you get back within distance, they automatically reconnect again. I mean, like, what's the big fucking deal, right? But some people seem to have issues with this, and I don't know why. Well, the thing, I mean, a lot of people say, like, the real the real range is, like, 800 meters, mm-hmm. which already is plenty for me. I know they claim two miles, but I feel like we've – or are two kilometers, but I feel like we've been – Definitely over a kilometer and still been able to communicate. But if somebody gets more than a kilometer away from you. Are they your friend? <laughs> you know? Well, who who are these people who are traveling cross country together who are more than a kilometer apart? Who are just casually in convoy like more than a thousand meters apart. Well, not to mention there's already a built in way around this in the Cena that you can just do a phone call instead. Right. You can be on opposite sides of the fucking country if you want and still talking to each other just fine. So if it is a situation where you're going to be getting that far apart, you can just call the other person. And you know what? It's not like you even have to stop, right? You just go, Oh, they're out of range. You know, this happened one time when we were doing that that iron butt down Dakota. We got separated. We were out of range. And like two logical people, we just stopped and I waited a, a couple minutes and I was like, okay, he's waiting for me to call him. So I just pressed the phone button. Hey, Siri, call. And oh, Siri's just done it. <laughs> that's how well it works right so um we get to um yeah we get to that point i just called you and then everything was fine and then we were able to figure out where each other was and we got back together so it's not even that big of a deal it doesn't involve anything from your hands but just reaching up and touching the phone button and then you do the rest by voice so if it is an emergency situation it's not a big deal right So I still think that the current level of not even the current, but like a generation ago, because the scene and everyone's come out with like new models since right after the SMH 10 C that do even more bells and whistles and crazy things now. Right now, the one thing I will say that probably there's probably two things that I would, that I would ding the scene, the, the scenes we have on. What's that? Uh, the first is battery life. I would prefer better battery life. Or at the very least, I don't know, a because- more convenient place to put the charging cable and have a fast charge option. With, with fast charging battery packs coming out and with the amount of time it takes to charge the Cena, it would be nice to be able to either have larger battery capacity or be able to charge it faster. Well, okay, you say that, but at the same time, it's got a 12-hour battery life. We've had these for like two, two and a half years, something like that. I I still get 12 hours out of my Cena on a charge, and I use it constantly. It's amazing. Not only that, but with just the uh, just the little like um thing of 
Okay, so not many people do, but we have outridden the battery life of our Cena's off of a full charge multiple times doing long trips, right? Now, that's just because you only run into that in an iron butt situation. Now, if you're in an iron butt situation, you're already adapting your riding to the way that you're riding, right? So all that we did was have little extra battery packs, really fucking cheap bullshit ones. We stuck them in the Napoleon pockets of our jackets, ran the cord up the neck, and stuck them in because the thing will operate whilst charging. And we have ridden with cheap battery packs, one each, 20 hours of non-stop Cena. So for me, batteries are not a real problem. That's the one thing I'd rather just not do what is charging while it's riding. What percentage of people are riding more than 12 hours straight? Is this really a big problem for most consumers? I don't think so. Well, it's not, but it's also a fairly expensive product in terms of People are, I mean, if you're thinking about how much helmets cost and considering that lots of people aren't buying ECE or, or Snell rated helmets, it is, you know, for a lot of people buying one of these units is, you know, the cost of the helmet, basically. That's true, but I've ridden mine in rain and snow and all sorts of things, and it still just works as well as it did mm-hmm. the day I got it. Yeah, it's a little banged up and scratched and this and that now, but that's because I, you know, I'm a little rough on my gear, and you know what? The thing's held up. Like, I have no mm-hmm. complaints about it. It was absolutely worth the money. Well, it's, it's not, de- it's delivering everything that was promised to me. Yeah. And it's worked really well. Now, the one place where it has, failed us is um connecting to non-cena devices well there's well there's two things there um they both kind of coincide a little bit which is when you have to start daisy chaining where you've got three or more people yeah it gets a little complicated you need to know exactly how to do it well not only that but if the person who's connecting the other two people goes out of range and you're all disconnected, there is a pairing order that has to happen for you all to be talking again. Again, and, we've also gotten around that by just doing a three-way phone call. This is true. But we've also ridden through a lot of places that didn't have cell reception. Yeah, but that's pretty rare. That's happened, what, a couple times that we've been riding, relying on cell phone, and it's cut well, out. And this then it is just came tr- back in a couple minutes later. Well, that's true. But how often are you? do you really need to, to have constant contact with the people that you're riding with where you're going a decent distance? Because if you're just going through town, well, if we can't talk to each other for this for these 20 miles, that's fine. Yeah. But if you're going 300 miles across the country, you know, cross, you know, crossing state borders and there's no cell reception for this 40 miles. Well, you're that's making you less wanna. turns. I would argue it's more important in town if you're taking a trip where you're like, okay, there's a lot of intricate on-ramps, off-ramps. We've got to get through town this way. In terms of being able to communicate, 
I'd say that's a little more important. If you're out in the middle of Nebraska and things cut out, well, it's not too difficult to just be within Bluetooth range. And you're not making very many turns in the middle of Nebraska. I don't know. Well, the thing the thing that happens frequently on those longer trips, this happened to us several times, and it's, it becomes much more complicated when you've got more people, is, oh, two of us made it through the light, and one of us was far enough back that they had to stop. And now we keep going. It's a one traffic light town. And now, oh, we're a mile down the road. The lights changed again. He's catching up. Now we've disconnected. Yeah, but it does reconnect automatically. Uh, it will if you're paired. Yeah. But, but again, you still just reach over and just hit the great big jog dial button on the side of your helmet once you see your people again. Well, you may be unaware of this because I had to extensively coordinate it when we did get all the devices connected. But there is an actual pairing order required. No, I know that. Yeah. So, but you have to know what it is. Yeah. You have to know that the guy in the middle who's connecting everybody together has to connect to somebody first. And then tell the other person after they've connected to connect to them. And then that person then has to, if they have a fourth person, you then have to direct that person to connect back to them. That's where it gets complicated. I admit that this is a thing, right? But it's still kind of magic to me that I can get podcast music, phone calls, whatever Siri like in my phone. Like I said, I will be riding down the road listening to I don't know how stuff works or whatever. And I'll just stop and hit the phone button and be like, hey Siri, Google this for me. You know, like Google information, you know, Google like read this, you know, and like, you know, ask Siri a question. See if Siri can find some sort of piece of information for me to like confirm what I just heard on the show or something, you know, or like, you know, what is the speed of a whatever, 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 you know, what can you find? Right. And, you know, there's, it's just magic to me that I can do that still. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's not 100% perfect, but for the cost, for the reliability, I still feel like the generation before of what we're working on with Bluetooth helmet sets is amazing yeah and you know if you go to the cena website and you read the reviews and the comments you get angry really quickly at these people that are just complaining about the tiniest problems and making a big deal about it and Cena really hasn't responded to any of these in a while. And I don't blame them. These are people that just don't understand the limitations of certain technologies or situations, right? People that are like, I can't hear the bass in this song. Fix the problem or I'll be returning my unit. Like crazy <laughs> shit like that. And it's like, you know, you're just like wearing a cheap set of headphones inside a helmet just stuck to the inside of them, right? Like this isn't like over ear covered 
you know, there are limitations to this. Like we can't guarantee there's like an airtight seal around your neck and you're in this perfect audio environment, you know, and you can well, so, yeah, buy different speakers. It's like, um, if you really want to, you can buy a $200 headset and just break the speakers out of those and put them inside your helmet. There's nothing to stop you from doing that. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that the the speakers that you put in your headset are basically a set of cheap drivers that you could get out of any $10 set of headphones. And if you want to, you can just take any reasonably nice set of headphones and pull the driver units out of those. Yeah. Find an inc- a slim enclosure for them and put those in your helmet. Now you got to make some or compromise. Just wrap them in fabric. Like whatever you want. Well, you also have to keep in mind that, you know, the actual thickness of the he- of the drivers, so the actual magnets that are vibrating to produce the sound can only be so thin. Yeah. To fit into a helmet. So you've either got to find some really high quality ones or You've got to find a helmet that has deeper grooves cut through an, in the EPS for it, which is going to compromise your safety. Or maybe you gouge it out a bit, or you, you've got to find you're you're going to have to make some. There's compromise. some finagling involved, but what is motorcycling if not finagling? You know, we've all experimented with different kinds of gear at one point or another until we found that thing that just works for us. You know, right? everyone's got that little thing in their rig, in their gear, the way they've adjusted something that's just like, ah, oh, there it is. That's home. Whether it's a certain kind of brake or clutch lever or a gear shifter or a certain seat or padding or a certain kind of jacket or, you know, you bought this really nice pair of boots, but it just didn't jive well with your ankles. Then you switched to this other pair and you went, there it is, right? I find it hard to believe that anybody has ever gotten on a motorcycle for a trip that was more than 15 minutes long where they didn't question something about the way they were riding in terms of, you know, Am I getting a bit heavy? Have I got a bit of a beer gut? Am I not feeling right? Am I a little bit tired? Are are my gloves starting to get a little thin and worn out? Does that brake feel quite right? Are my tires up to pressure? Is my head is my does my helmet feel right? Am I due for an oil change? There is always something yeah. that you question. And it's part of what makes motorcycling Great. Is that it's, it's engaging. Yeah, it's engaging. It's in the moment. It's not like you're getting into your, you know, your, your new SUV that you're still paying off the loan for. Right. Where you're just saying, where you're just thinking, well, I'm just going to get through this commute. Yeah. That never happens on a motorcycle. It's, there's always something going on. And there's something, and you're always in tune with everything that's happening. So, in terms of, you know, the speakers not being quite up to scratch, of course, there that's another part of the system mm-hmm. that you're going to constantly question. You're going to find ways to refine and make it work better. Yeah. So, 
I don't know who these people are who are riding motorcycles who all of a sudden got this amazing technology thrown at them and they want to complain about it. I mean, I understand it's a bit expensive and maybe some salesman promised them the world in terms of what it could do. But it's a weird thing to... Now, okay, so this being said, like we'll we'll get some more definitive answers because I can't imagine that Cena, for example, is not going to be a name. And trust me, on Media Day, I'm going to have some questions for these people, right? And, you know, who the people that I see sort of complaining about the old system isn't actual writers. I think everyone that has an, SMA, an SMH10C like us still loves it, right? And now... There's this, you know, there were certain people that had issues with the technology, but they were probably people that didn't ride all that long before they had it, right? Yeah. Because, again, like I said, if you rode for a decade or longer before Bluetooth helmet systems, they're all just magic to you, you know? Right. So the people are kind of basically moto journalists right they're like oh my gosh here's the new stuff the old stuff is garbage right you can't oh man god you know it's like it's like one day i was at um a really shit job that i used to have working in a liquor store and this woman who worked there came in with um you know there's like bubba cups right yeah and i looked at it on and i was just like just marveling at this like two and a half liter insulated thermal container for soda, right? Just like, wow, this is everything I hate about America, right? And I looked under the bottom because I thought, and sure enough, I saw there's a serial number for this product. And it was like, you know, for whatever reason, it was called like, you know, the X9783, right? And I just made the joke. I was like, man, I don't even know how we ever got by on the X9782s. You know, <laughs> and that that's kind of I think that says a lot to the situation, right? Like the Cena SMH10C is already a ridiculous luxury item. It really is. You know, the motorcycles existed for a hundred and thirty years before this technology and was still something people were completely passionate about doing cross country trips and everything. You know, we used to communicate the whole thing with hand signals, right? Motorcycle hand signals are very much becoming a lost art, right? Well, this is true, but you also have to consider if you went back to the Victorian era and showed somebody a Bic lighter, it would blow their minds. Well, if you showed them, well, no, lighters were around then, but if you said it's available everywhere for a dollar nineteen, that would blow their minds. Yes. So, you know, so anyway, there's these moto journalists now or whoever just complaining about the old systems. And, you know, that, that's, that's sort of okay and not okay, right? You know, there are people being paid to talk about the new Cena systems and there are people who just general, genuinely think the new ones are a great big step up. So what I want to kind of dive into for just a moment is, is it worth upgrading your rig now? Or if you're buying a new one now and you're a new rider, is it worth going for the full-on thing? 
So from what I have, I mean, you know, neither of us have had, have had any experience with the next gen stuff yet. Well, n- not even the current gen. Forget the next gen. We're two gen behind. Uh, somewhat. I mean, the connectivity for all like the previous gen are I all used, the same like, as what we I have. I haven't used the Cena one that has the camera in it. I haven't used the twenty S or even the ten S. Like I, I don't know. Well, they're not giving you anything that that we actually use on a daily basis. Yeah. From what I have gathered of the new stuff. You're not really going to see a huge benefit unless you're pairing with more than one other person on a regular basis. Um, are all the new ones USB type C? I don't actually know. Cause that might be one tangible real world benefit. Well, right? that's the one thing I really want because the 10 C have a diminishing number of electronics in my life that are micro usb and i just wish everything would switch over to to see i'm willing to say the only two user problems i've actually had with my cena is one um it's been a pain in the ass to connect with multiple people and especially when we like tried to get mike in with his old um his like cheapo bt system right which we did eventually figure out, and it's not a problem now, but it was a hassle to figure out how to do it. The instructions were really just, you know, it was like translated to Chinese and translated back, right? So that was a thing. But what has happened much more commonly is that the, in an effort to make it waterproof and all this other stuff, the Cena charging point port is not great. So there have been times I've gone to charge my Cena. The light pops up, but it's not plugged in just right. And I've come back two hours later and been like, okay, it's time to ride. And then five minutes into the ride, low battery because the thing charged for 10 minutes and then it just came loose or didn't that charge. That is a right. really good point. And it's a bullshit thing on the Cena, which is the the well, socket stand well, it's no. because they wanted to make it waterproof and weatherproof which they absolutely did well they but did you have to be really deliberate when you plug it into charges well no here's the thing everyone has gotten used to the idea that you don't have to have the charger for your particular device you don't have to have the charger that it came out that came out of the box right you know it's it's a micro usb port so you should be able to take any micro USB cable and plug it in. And which 90, technically you can with the 99% Cena, of the time that works. But the Cena port is just embedded deep in the device. There's this little cutout and mm-hmm. has the cable has to go really deep in and the cable that it comes with works because the whole metal part is is really naked and sticking way out in a way that most micro USB plugs don't. Right. So if you just take any USB micro USB cable to charge off your computer or off of a wall charger or whatever, there's an eighty percent chance that it's just not going to be long enough to go in and fit. 
Right. Now, again, this is kind of BS because I have found just gas station USB chargers that I've been able to plug into my Cena and charge whilst I'm even going down the road, but not with 100% confidence. And this is getting into micro gripes, right? You know, but it is, it is a thing that, that USB type C would solve this problem 100%. Yes. So I honestly, in looking at buying a new unit, like besides USB type C and I guess this mesh system of getting it to pair with other units better, I don't know what else I'm really getting. Right. I would honestly put uh, the type C connector way above the mesh stuff because the mesh stuff would be great if we more frequently rode with more than the two of us or even three people because that's something that's going to come up once once a year twice a year yeah in terms of we've really got to be connected and to be so much better if we were all connected i mean it may be more of a big deal if dad yeah could convert and finally that's true. If we but, get dad a Cena unit for a Christmas or something, we would probably be obliged because I can't imagine him trying to go through the, no, 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 wait to press the, when we tell you to hold the button, hold the button. It's simple. Do, wait, do I press it now? No, hold the button now. Do, oh my, give it to me. Right. <laughs> like that's the conversation that would happen. Right. Um, so I yeah. guess, I guess if you're, if you're not clued in, to the uh, the nuances of the technology, then the mesh is a great thing. What you need to be able to do is have all the old fogies in your group seed control of their devices to the party leader, yeah. who can then get everybody on the same channel. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, but you know, again, the mesh isn't that big of a deal to me. It's well, not. here's the thing. I think I think it would be. If we regularly rode with larger groups who, and we all want to talk together, you know, if ditch, if ditch rode riding in super large groups, though, we're like, not super large groups, like four or five people, right? On a regular, on a more regular basis, like more than once a month. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing: the new headsets are all. Three hundred plus dollars each with the mesh technology. Well, wasn't it like three fifty? You got the two pack. It was like two eighty. Two eighty, and you got the two pack. Yeah. So yeah, I, I would price, say the price hold tag. Off. Yeah, the price tag is a kick in the balls right now. But in a couple years, it may be ubiquitous, ubiquitous enough. That it makes sense, because I think there's a little bit of an early adopter's fee attached to the new stuff right now. Yeah. Man, I thought we were just going to talk about this for 10 minutes. We got like 25 minutes out of bitching about <laughs> Cena technology getting away from yeah. us. Like, So if you think this I, is all like... Super- back in my day, we had the <laughs> SMH10C, and you know what? We liked it. <laughs> so I, I think... I think it's going to be amazing at some point, but you also have to keep in mind that, you know, everyone talks about how amazing transistor radios were, yeah. but it was still probably another five years or so before everyone could just be like, well, I'll just go buy 
a second transistor radio because they're so cheap and I can just have two. Yeah. You know, like, it's not at that point yet, I think, because, you know, for $300, I didn't even spend that much on my helmet. Yeah. Like, it it is a pretty penny, and it, it is, they are really nice to have, but, you know... There, there's a there's a cutoff point. I think all this technology really needs to stabilize around the hundred and fifty dollar price point. Like if you think about like the break free that's coming out, right? Mm-hmm. That's around that price point, you know. And you know all these, like you know, what's a good what's a good decent pair of gloves? A hundred and fifty dollars. What's a you know a good decent. I don't know about jacket, but there's so many like ex- motorcycle accessories. Everyone's just sort of figured out 150 or thereabouts is what people are going to immediately shell out on. If you're looking for a fancy well, unless you're LED tail light, right? You know, 150 is that sort of magic number. If you're looking for, you know, an upgrade to your front headlight, well, there's a huge range of that, but you know what I mean? That's sort of that magic number that I've noticed most products have sort of settled around, you know, plus or minus a few. But, you know, once you're north of $200 for a motorcycle accessory, right? Now, I don't consider a helmet an accessory. That's a must have, right? That'd be like if you just had a baby and you're like, well, are you talking uh, car seats and accessory? No, it's a must have, right? Well, so- what, what it is, is if you're targeting the everyday rider and you're, you're add, adding something that they can use every day, that it's a good value to them, but it's not in their plans. Cause people don't plan out in their yearly budget when they're going to buy a Cena. Right. So you have to target a price point that kind of fits into the average motorcyclist's discretionary spending. Yeah. And I think most people who own a motorcycle can swing, you know, $200 a month in discretionary spending. Perhaps. I mean, it depends, but yeah. And that's really, well, that's really what the price point is. Like, I don't think there are most people who are thinking, well, you know, if, if you're, if you're at the stage where, well, to put it in perspective, if you're, if you're at the, if you're in a financial position where a speeding ticket would blow out your monthly budget. Yeah. That's roughly around where, you know, a 150 to $200 item would, would fit in. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. You're right. Hmm. Never thought of that in terms of the speeding ticket. That that's very sharp. I like that. Okay. So basically, I think what we've come down to is like the next generation of Bluetooth helmets are going to be super sweet, but until they cost south of two hundred dollars, I want no truck with them. Now someone has to buy them, and people will, right? But, you know, if you're just riding now and you're just getting into it, you've had your bike for six months or whatever, and you're like, oh, I got to get a Bluetooth helmet set. Everyone's told me how great these are. And they are great. Trust me. I still say go for the older one. Like, even just get a used SMH10, 
Like it's going to do everything you need it to do by yourself. You'll still be able to hook up to everyone you want. It'll still hook up with the brand new ones. I'm sure, you know, and then later on down the road, you could upgrade it when everybody has one that does the mesh stuff, but that's years away, you know, and you can get a used SMH 10 for what? 80, 90 bucks on eBay. No problem. Probably. Uh, yeah, no I mean, problem. Well, they don't. They're they're either good or they're dead. Yeah, they don't really wear out. Yeah, I haven't heard of one just wearing. Mine's still just kicking strong like it was on day one. So, you know what? Shell out, you know, whatever it costs for a used one, or just buy an old one new, which is still just going to be like a hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty tops, right? And it's going to do everything you want it to do. Just go with that. Get into, you know, having one. And then if there's things about it that you don't like, you know, you can sell it on to a friend or eBay or whatever you want later on. Like, I don't know. I just, I just seen a lot of people talking about these things like really elitist. And I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to drop that much money. If you're a new writer right now, I would rather someone spends less money on their Bluetooth device and spends an extra 50 bucks for the snow rated helmet or the gloves that have sliders on the palms and the knuckle protection. Or maybe that's that, it's that last 50 bucks that makes them able to afford a pair of riding pants or whatever. Or, or the CE2 back protector. Or the CE2 back protector. Or just adding, you know what, for 50 bucks, that's the CE level chest. Uh, chest protector that'll slide into your jacket as well. That's well worth the money, right? The, is it like, what's it, what's a better, what's a better value? You know, the chest protection or the convenience of not having to hit the button just real quick to reconnect with your buddy on the road. The chest protection's way better. The back protection's way better. Or, you know, the extra 50 bucks on the jacket that comes with the armor, not just the slots to put it into. Rather than, you know, pieces of foam in those places. So I don't think it's a must have for the new ones yet. That's just my two cents on it because to me, the old ones are still magic. So there we go. All right. Let's take a break and then come back with something else. Okay. And we're back again. So we're going to talk some obligatory GP now. We're in the break, but there are things to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. So, well, let's start off with uh, the fact that this happens every year, but if you're not subscribed and you don't have the video pass, you should know that for the second half of this season, you can get a video pass half price. Yeah, that's amazing. And they'll continue to prorate it throughout the season as well. So, like, by the last race, you can get it for, like, $9 or something like that, right? So, you, and, but the beauty part is, is that right now in the middle of the season, because it's what, there's another three weeks, two and a half weeks until the next race? Yeah, it's about that. We're in the summer break. So you can spend half the money, which is what, $90 roughly? It's like, it's like 70 bucks. Oh, is that 70, okay. 80 bucks max? So you can spend 70 to $80, but in the next few weeks, while there are no races, 
you can just blitz through the whole first half of the season, get caught up on all the drama, know all the writers, read all the stories, get right into what's happening for half of what Swiggy and I paid. Or if you want, you can go through the last 15 years of races. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's worth it, too. You can just Google what the most epic races are and watch those and just have your socks knocked off. Yeah. So you can do that and then come into the second half of the season totally caught up right now for half the price. You've got the deal and just become a MotoGP super fan like we highly recommend you do. If I, I don't care what kind of bike you ride, right? Like just because you have a cruiser, that's like saying, Oh, I can't be into formula one because I drive an SUV. Right. Right. Like, oh, I can't, I can't be in a MotoGP. I have a Harley that makes zero sense, bro. All right. Like you don't need to ride a 600 RR of some description to be in the MotoGP. Okay. Like, I got a hot bike, but it's not a fucking track bike. Okay. You know, I, MotoGP is just the well, when greatest you racing it, sport ever. Well, when you got into it, you were riding the, um, I think I was on the CB 900 still when I started watching MotoGP. That right. was a long time. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a pig of a bike. Right. And then you dropped down to the CB 350. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it, this is not, it's not a reflection of what you ride, right? This is just the greatest sport ever, and you should be into it because of that. And it's motorcycling, okay? And it's crazy prototype. So, you know, what you ride has nothing to do with it. So get in at half the price and get onto it. Now, on with the developments. So Danny Petrosa has officially retired, retired. That's mm-hmm. a little sad to me, but we knew this was coming basically, right? So it's worth kind of talking about Danny's accomplishments for a second. Do we know how many all out race wins he's had? Why don't you Google that for a second? <clears throat> I'm going to Google something else. So Danny Pedrosa is basically the most successful rider that never won a championship, right? Right. And when we really pull up his stats here, you know, Danny Pedrosa. Well, here you go. This is how big Danny Pedrosa is. Maybe this has to do with Google learning my habits, but I put in D-A-N-I into Google, and Danny Pedrosa is the first thing that came up. It's Google. Yes. So Danny is incredibly successful in MotoGP. I mean, it's it's really just he's he's won so many races – it's really surprising he hasn't won a championship. There's no one else that has this many wins and things that just even cut. There are people with less wins that have won championships. Well, Nikki Hayden. Nikki Hayden's a great example. There you go. He is. Let's see. So um, we've got set. Hmm. In his, in his first year, just seven wins, but all time, I'm struggling to even find an all time list because he's good for a few wins every year. Well, it's also important to consider how long he's gone without having a season where he has at least one win. Cause, you know, there are videos of Mark Marquez at like 11 years old talking about how 
he wants to grow up to be a great motorcycle racer like Danny Pedrosa. Yeah. Yeah, because he's 29, 30. He's about that age. How old is he? When was he born? It's hard to say, but I don't know. He's not celebrated enough. And also, like, we, everyone always says about him, he's the nicest guy. Like, everyone's all about his personality. And in a world of racing with, you know, kind of, kind of in a little bit of a, um, who are we talking about? 32. He's 32. Oh, geez. I was off. Um, in a way, like we were talking about Joey Dunlop last week, he is a person that races just because he needs to race. It's not like he has a competitive spirit that manifests itself in racing. He just is this sport and he is, he is this and he's calling it quits. And that's, you know, 32 is actually still kind of old to throw in the towel, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just wanted to talk a bit about what he's done. Oh, I just found a sheet. I think I can count up the wins here. Do, 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 do. Wins. So one, two, three, five, six, seven, eight, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 24, 56, 54 wins and 153 podiums from the 125- 250 in MotoGP classes from 2001 to 2018. Most MotoGP riders will never get a single win. He is 54. I mean, what? Rossi's got like 120, right? And that is astronomical numbers. Marquez has like 90 or something, right? And then after Danny Petroza, like, where does it drop off to, right? Like, how many did Casey Stoner have? What, like 40, right? Mm-hmm. You know, people will, a lot of people will call Casey Stoner, like, the greatest of all time. I don't actually know off the top of my head how many, you know, wins Casey Stoner had, but it's a lot, right? And 54, I'm willing to bet a lot of money, is a larger number. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. With it's sad to see him to see him go, but in a way I am kind of glad that he is retiring. Yeah. And here's why. If you look at cause Danny Pedrosa is not a big guy. No. I think he, I think he's like five four. Something like that. He's miniature. Yeah. So he's broke he's broken both of his collarbones twice. Yeah. He's fractured his humerus. On on his right, he's got arm pump. He's broken both a couple fingers twice. He's yeah another season yeah. of this, and he's walking with a cane. Yeah, yeah. He's fractured both wrists. He's fractured his tibia, his ankles. Uh, he's had a he's cut up his right knee. If you just look at the number of injuries Danny Pedrosa has had in his career. Going on, he's looking at basically an evil Knievel type retirement of constant pain. And crutches and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I still think he could, he could move into some sort of like testing role or something like that Mm -hmm. because he's, he's an, he's a crazy talent. You know, 
he was he was up there. He was he was an alien in like the alien era of MotoGP racing. So anyway, we're sad to see him go. You know, a lot of people thought he was going to move to what was the team like the new Yamaha team. Oh, I should be more up on it. I haven't really paid attention to what this new team is going to be or anything because I real I still don't think that Yamaha is going to take it seriously. I think they're still putting all their eggs in the Rossi basket. Patronus. Oh, that's right. Patronus. Okay. So, so Yamaha is switching over t- to, uh, from, from Tech 3, mm-hmm. who's going to KTM. They are now switching over to, or rather, Tech 3 has dumped Yamaha for yes. KTM, which kind of speaks volumes. In terms yeah. of what that relationship was like. Well, Yamaha's given no fucks about their satellite team forever. It's been no secret that the Yamaha satellite team is the worst supported satellite team in the paddock since forever. And now they're really doing the thing where they, they're really not going to care about this Patronus team. The only reason to be halfway excited about this Patronus team is that Patronus is a major sponsor of race teams in other sports, like Mercedes Formula One, for example. So maybe just the sponsor itself is that large that they'll throw in the money for it, but unlikely, right? I mean, well, the other thing they is they get all the press they need from Lewis Hamilton. Why would they give a shit about this satellite MotoGP team? Apparently, this team will be owned by the Sepang Raceway. Really? I didn't know that. Yes. So is this going to be a, a bike just like engineered towards winning that race and nothing else? I don't think so. It's it's going to be interesting because you also have to consider that. Despite not having a ton of representation, mm-hmm. Malaysia is insanely into MotoGP. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, like, yeah. in a ridiculous way. Well, everyone rides a motorcycle in Malaysia. Like, everyone rides a motorcycle in Malaysia. So, of course, they're into this. So, it'll be interesting to see what they do with the team. I mean, because they clearly have enough money to support a circuit, and now they've got a team, and you know they've got what is there like what three rider, three Malaysian riders in GP right now? Uh, well, there's only one in GP, but from yeah. Moto three to Moto two, Moto GP, um, there's a few. Yeah, it's it's becoming they're they're getting a they're getting passport rides. They're, you know, the riders are getting chosen over other riders for being well, Malaysian. They always crush it in the wet. This, this is true. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Because what's his name? Who's in Moto 2 now? What's his name? Ma, ma, ma. Oh, gosh. Something, uh, something Powie. Yeah, uh, Powie. Yeah, Powie. I can't remember his, his first name it, is like, yeah, because of an M. Yeah, whatever it is. Name. Yeah, they all have insane names. This is devolving. We need to drink <laughs> less through these. Anyway, so we've got this Yamaha team and I don't even know who's riding on this team. We thought Danny Petrosa was potentially going to go there, but who actually is riding for this team now? Uh, it's confirmed that Quateraro is going to ride for them. Okay. 
Um, I don't know if there is reliable information on who the other writer will be at this point. And it may not actually be confirmed at this point. It's probably not. So it's up in the air. But it's basically a seat that no one gives a shit about. You know, we know it's not going to be um British racer, neck tattoos, helmet scraping. Oh, my gosh. Redding? Scott Redding. <laughs> it's not going to be Scott Redding, right? Scott Redding's done, right? He might go to World Superbike. Or he might just be completely finished and he'll just start a racing school somewhere. He's destined for British Superbike. I think Scott Redding should just start a racing school somewhere. Just, you know, be like, hey, I was a MotoGP racer. I did the best I could on the equipment I got. Now I'm starting. I I would take lessons from Scott Redding, okay? It's not a bad way to be put out to pasture. There are worse things in this world. You know, like, hey, you got to the top level of motorcycle racing in the world, dude. Like, hang your head high and go out with good grace is kind of what I say there. I don't think less of him. But you can't get to that. You can't get to that class without believing you're the best and you could win. I know. Right. I know. You, Yeah. But at some point, it's time to look at the man in the mirror and realize, well, for the next year, everyone's going to think I'm a bitch. But 10 years from now, everyone's going to be like, hey, you used to race MotoGP, right? You're awesome. You know, you you just kind of got to go that way and realize just it's hard to hang up your ego when you're at this level of racing. But Scott Redding's got to just look at that and and go there. You know, someone like um, Pedrosa, it's a it's an easier down. They can go, hey. You know, I'm in like the top five of like most wins of MotoGP riders like ever, you know? Right. Like, I, I, yeah, I didn't win a championship. Fuck you. Look how many wins I have. Look how many podiums I have. You know, Danny Pedrosa can tell anyone to just fuck off, you know, but you never won a championship. Oh, really? Well, how many wins do you have? You know, he's got that comeback. He can, he can walk out just still thinking he's a stud because he is. Scott Redding has a much different thing in front of him, you know, and, you know, if Dovey doesn't ratchet it up, Dovey might have a, a similar thing, you know, like Dovey's got wins, but what, eight, nine? I mean, not many. So, you know, that, you know, everyone thinks Dovey's a great writer right now. Like he literally has like a sixth of the wins that Danny Petrosa has. Yeah. Dovey's going to struggle. Well, Dovey's going to struggle five years from now, I think, in terms of people remembering him for, 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 you know, for his career record. Yeah. He, he really needs to pull a championship together at one of these points to, to solidify his legacy. Otherwise, it's just all downhill for him. Well, yeah, because what, what Dovey did last year is what, Pedrosa has done four times already. Yeah, it's true. So let's see. Anything else in GP news? There's not a whole lot. When's the next race? Too long. I know, right? It's the 5th of August. Oh, my. Where? What, what race is it? The Czech Republic. Oh, okay. I kind of like that race every year. Something weird always happens there. 
That's because it rains fifty percent of the time. I was gonna say, so isn't nobody that has nobody has a good gauge. Of, it's like Silverstone, like right. It's it because it rains so much. Nobody has a good handle on right. Didn't um, Crutchlow get his other win there? Uh it might have been that year. He got two because he won Silverstone. And he won somewhere else in the second half of the season. Was it Czechoslovakia? I think so. I think it was. Yeah, weird shit happens there. I think it's gonna be a good race, and you know the the Yamahas are getting better, so we'll see what happens. But I think we should put this to bed for the moment because I want to tell a story before we end this episode. And there's not a large conclusion to this, but um. We got a new review. Can you bring that up so we can read bits from that real quick? But, um, so last week, last Friday, I can't remember exactly one day. Anyway, I'm driving my truck up I-25 and I see a dude leaning against the, the wall, the sound barrier essentially on the off ramp off of I-25. And he's got his feet kind of up and he's just basically leaning against his bike, sitting on the stand. And it's obviously he's sitting there and his bike's broken down. And it was just, I saw him too late and I couldn't pull over immediately. So I actually went to the next exit, turned around, couldn't remember exactly the exit he was at, went back a few, came back up 25 and then stopped. Because just the way he was sitting there, just looking super defeated I, I I don't know. I just couldn't leave the dude sitting there. It just wasn't in me to leave him there. So I turned around, went and got and see him. So I pull over and I'm in a sketchy spot. So this is like get my truck as far over as I can because the shoulder my truck is wider than the shoulder at this point, right? And I walk back to him and I'm like, "What's going on? You out of gas or whatever?" Like you know, I got my truck here. I've got gas cans. What's going on? He's like, "Oh no." It's worse than that. And I'm like, oh, yeah? You know, I'm, I'm walking up on the bike. I'm like, oh, it's an old ZX. Like, what? You know? At first, I thought it was a ZX6 like I used to have. I was like, oh, I sold mine like this like a little earlier this year. Like, you know? And uh, then I saw it was a ZX11. I'm like, oh, ZX11, the legend. Like, Speed Wars bike. Like, right on. Like, okay, so what's going on with this thing? And he points to the ground. And there is a massive puddle of oil massive puddle of oil and so we get out the phones and we're trying to like peek inside the fairing and i'm like look there's like a 10 percent chance or something maybe maybe hopefully like just your oil filter came off you know but he told me like he lost power like before he pulled over and i'm like oh that's not good it's not good bro <laughs> You know, and like, I felt so bad for this guy. Like, you know, he was, and he was wearing like safety gear and stuff. He had a helmet, he had gloves. Um, he didn't have a jacket, but he had like a, uh, one of those like, um, pullover body protectors, all the spine protection and the mm-hmm. chest and everything. So I was like, all right, right on, you know. Oh, and I'm like thinking, like, what are we going to do with this bike, man? I'm like, look at, I got the camper shell in the back of my truck and I'm thinking, like, oh, should I ask him if there's a place we can drive to? We can pull this camper shell off. We can move his bike in the back of mine. I've got tie-down straps and shit. Like, we can make this happen. It's going to be a long night for me, but let's go there. Let's do this. And he's like, no, 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 no. I got someone coming, whatever. And 
I still just couldn't leave him there. I thought like, just looking at this bike, I'm like, this is getting close to 600 pounds of bike that needs pushed up into a truck. I don't know what kind of truck is showing up, right? Is this a Tacoma or is this is like a, or is this going to be a Tundra like way up high off the ground? Right. And it's a good thing I stuck around because, um, his, he had a, he had a, a buddy show up who was obviously a badass friend and he shows up and he pulls up on the side of this off ramp and he gets a ramp out, right? And his truck is up high, right? And his ramp was really badass, but the problem was it was one of those threefold ramps that comes out really wide, but oh. it's really short and really steep, right? That's where you need to have the handoff method. Now, if you with your, uh, with your ranger had this ramp, you would be in heaven because your truck's low. You could still mm-hmm. get bikes up off it, but it's also the three wide ramps. You could walk the bike and you could clutch it up the ramp and you would be in heaven. This guy needed a longer ramp. So we start pushing the bike up. And it got past the front wheel, then bottomed out real quick. Oh, I've had that problem before. We actually actually had to like back it up again. And I was like, look, I'm on the back. You guys on the sides, like one, two, three, gun it. And we just powered it through like it being bottomed out. Like at a certain point, I just started lifting from the back rather than pushing. And we got it up there. I have had this problem before. Uh Uh-huh. And the trick I found Mm-hmm. is what you need to do, and this is really helpful if you have three or maybe even four people. Well, we had three. If you can recruit more, is what you can do. If it's just going to bottom out and you can't really deal with it, the trick is is you've got to push it right up to right about where it bottoms out, Yeah, the front wheel and the bed of the truck. And you've got to get it as close to that point as possible to get all of the weight as far onto the onto the bed as possible, and as close to the bed of the truck as you can. Uh huh. And then, ideally, you can have one person in the bed of the truck holding the front brake. And what you got to do is have you've got to get somebody to go get something to put under the bottom of the ramp. To oh, make and the then angle increase the angle. Oh. Yeah. But generally, you're going to need two people to be able to lift, lift. it up yeah. and maybe have a hand free or get a third person to place something under the bottom of the ramp after you've got the bike as high up as you can. So you've got the leverage to you actually know, lift it when up. When we got to that midpoint on the ramp, like, you know, I was trying to keep hope afloat. By suggesting this idea that maybe he just lost his oil filter. But deep down, I think everyone knew that the bike was fucked. <laughs> and it was like, we just need to get this off the side of the road. You know, that's. And I feel bad because he told me like he bought it from the original owner who'd bought it from new. Had like 30,000 miles on it. And he said he got it with like complete service history and everything. And the bike had no problems. And like he's, he'd like taken all the fairings off and was riding it around naked. And then he had like someone do something to him, not cool in traffic. And he'd like laid it down or something. Then he put the fairings back on. There's some sort of story there. So 
Anyway, I had to like part ways with the guys that gave him some like cards for the show. And I was like, dude, hit us up. Like, let me know how your bike turned out. And so he wrote a review and apparently cylinder three is completely blown open. Like it's a, oh man. So yeah. So basically I'm just taking a moment to say like, sorry, bro. Like we feel really bad about your bike. I know it's not our fault, but you know, it just sucks because the guy said he had the bike like three weeks, you know, and like I can't imagine dropping a few grand on a bike, riding around for three weeks, and then the engine just blows, you know, like, oh, it's fucking rough. Yeah. So anyway, we feel your pain, man. And um, I don't know, you know, when you get another bike or whatever, hit us up. Let's ride, you know. All right. And then after that, do we have anything else to settle up this episode? I think we're good. I think we're good, too. We're getting close to two hours. So with that, let's remind everyone once again, leave us reviews, leave us five-star ratings, and send us emails. We want to hear from you. I don't care how mundane you think it is. We want to know about you. We want to hear about you. We want to read your emails. I want to respond to them. And with that, I'm going to remind you to stay safe and stay tuned. Let's run the outro. And I don't want to die Just want to ride on my motorcycle mm, Cold 